We get to Luke chapter 14 this morning. We're going to finish, finish the chapter, verses 25 through 35. No one gains a right relationship with God through their own obedience. You are forgiven of your sins, declared righteous, reconciled to God on the basis of the work of Christ through faith in His work, based on the grace of God. That is, that is sometimes called undeserved kindness, God's grace. It's probably better defined, ill-deserved kindness. It's kindness when we deserved God's wrath. All you can do with a gift is receive it. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. And we receive the gift of God's grace through reliance on the finished work of Jesus Christ. The thief on the cross didn't have time to earn his salvation. He was dying one second. He was in paradise the next. Maybe you've seen the, the video that's been making the rounds on Facebook of Alistair Beg talking about the thief on the cross, and um, you know he's sort of imagining the thief showing up at heaven's gates, and there's some angel that's there, and the angel says, well, "Well, let me ask you, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith alone?" And the thief says, "I've never heard of it in my life." And he says, "Well, what about you know? Let's go to the doctrine of Scripture. What do you believe about Scripture?" And he says, "I I, I don't know what you're." talking about. And finally, the, the angel grows, grows frustrated and says, then on what basis are you here? And the thief says, the man on the middle cross said I could come. It's based solely on the work of Christ. We'll sing at the end of our service this morning, dressed in His righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. How do I stand before the throne? It's because I'm faultless in Christ. Most of us aren't on a cross dying. Most of us aren't even on our deathbed. So our entrance into eternal life that begins the moment you trust in Jesus Christ is the beginning of a life that's directed towards Christ. It's the beginning of a life of growing into the image of Christ and of following Christ over the course of a lifetime. When you come to Christ, you receive a new heart, you receive new desires because you have a new Lord and you have the Spirit indwelling you, conforming you and shaping you into the image of Jesus, renewing your mind after the image of Christ. So Acts 26.20 where Paul is talking about how he's called people to repentance and when they repent, they're, they're saved. But what, is he, what does he say? He says, I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God. That's saving faith. You're repenting because you're trusting in the gospel. Then what? Performing deeds in keeping with repentance. Performing deeds in keeping with repentance. Walking in this righteousness. So many of us this morning are trusting in Christ. We've turned from our sin and we're relying on Him. We're in that process of seeking to be faithful. So whether you're separated from God because of sin or whether you're, it, it, you've trusted in Christ and you're walking this path, God's Word has hope and help for us this morning in the words of Jesus. I, 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 the words of Christ this morning are a call, a hard call, but they're also a comfort. There's a comfort and a call for us this morning and we see, first of all, there in verses 25 through 27, the priority of following Christ. 
the priority of following Christ. I know Paul just read it a few minutes ago, but I'll read the verses we're going to deal with now. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You know, if you've been, been with us, you know, we've, we've been in Luke, walking through Luke a, a section at a time, and a lot of what we've seen lately is Jesus interacting with the religious leaders, the scribes who are experts in the law, the Pharisees, the, the, the religious elite of Israel. He's been coming, uh, you know, he's been feuding with them. I guess fighting with them would be an appropriate Word. He's trying to undermine the, the religious leaders' assumptions that they will enjoy the kingdom by, by benefit of them being Israelites or by benefit of them keeping God's law. They will, benef- they will enter the kingdom of God. And so Jesus has demonstrated that those who seem like the most likely candidates to enjoy the kingdom, to sit with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob at the right and left hand of Christ. Those who seem like the greatest candidates are actually in danger. Jesus is warning them, you're going to miss the kingdom. You're going to miss the kingdom. So he's been, he's been arguing with the Pharisees, trying to undermine their self-righteousness and their self-confidence and their pride. But we see in our text this morning in verse 25 that there's a, there's a different audience. There's this, these large crowds that are, that are surrounding Jesus. You know, it seems, as we've walked through the Gospel of Luke, that the crowds are, are not quite as hostile to Jesus as the Pharisees and the scribes. So, so we've seen that the crowd is sort of in the middle here between the disciples who have left everything and they follow Jesus. You know, they're committed to Christ. The Pharisees are obstinate. They're rejecting Christ. Christ is threatening them. And then you've got the crowd in the middle here who is, who, who is kind of a, a conglomerate of all different sorts of people. You know, I'm sure some in the crowd are, are made up of the disciples, those who are devoted to Christ. Some are... Some are intrigued by Christ or sort of tracking with Christ, but they've yet to dedicate their life to Him. Some are, some are just curious. They've heard about the miracles. They've come to see what that's all about. Some are likely skeptical. And then there's some there that are likely hostile. And so all these sort of form this crowd that's, that's around Jesus. And remember that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem knowing that that's where he'll die. So as as he is on his way to the cross, he's calling the crowd then to understand exactly what it is to give up everything and to follow him. Because he's heading to his own death. So if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to pick up your own cross. You you can kind of hang around the periphery. But if you, want to, if you want to come and follow me, this is what it's going to cost. And Jesus just uses absolutely shocking language in, in verse 26. Look at it there. I know I just read that section, but if anyone comes to me and does not hate his, and then he goes on to list family. And I think sometimes we're, 
we're maybe a little too quick to, to run, like, hey, let's just resolve this real fast. This sounds, this is hard. This is, this seems like something Jesus shouldn't have said. So let's just run and, and resolve that. But before we talk about that word hate, we should, we should stop for a minute and consider what gives Jesus the authority to talk this way. What gives him the right to say, you must, you must hate your mother and your father and your, your sons and your daughters and your husband or your wife? If you want to, if you want to faithfully follow me, you know, if I said that, the elders would fire me and should fire me that day, right? If, if I got up here and said, you should follow me and you should love me more than you love your own, that's, so what is Jesus doing? What gives him the right and the authority to speak this way? What Jesus is doing is, is he's, he's actually taking the first commandment and he's applying it to himself. You shall have nothing before me. You shall have no other gods before me. This is a statement from Jesus that's packed with theology, packed with Christology. Jesus can and should speak this way because he is the eternal Son of God. He can say, you should love me and prioritize me above anything and everything and everyone and everybody in your life because I am the Son of God. He is asserting that He deserves your hearts. He deserves your worship and your love and your affections. He's asserting that He must have the supreme place in your heart and in your life. Yes, even above your parents. Above your spouse, above your kids, above your siblings. So this is a reality that, that we must wrestle with, with this morning. Either, you know, there's only two options as it pertains to Christ. Either He isn't who He says He is. He isn't who He claims to be. And then we've wasted our time this morning. There's no sense in us gathering together. No sense in us singing. No sense in us preaching. There's absolutely no use for Christianity if Jesus is not the Son of God. But if He is, and He is, then He gets to talk this way. He gets to say these sort of hard things. And He gets priority in our lives. The thing, in, the, the thing that makes the least amount of sense logically is to say, I'm going to sort of allow Jesus on the margins of my life and I'll, I'll, I'll sort of kind of, I'll sing the songs I want to sing and, and I'll go to church every once in a while and I'll sort, of, I'll, I'll sort of do the religious thing. But He doesn't get all of me. That's actually the, the, the decision that makes the least amount of sense we think about it you know don't ask me to give up kids sports or money or comfort or entertainment but Jesus is the son of God and he gets to demand he, he, he deserves and demands our our hearts so now maybe we're in a position to think about this word hate and clearly we're not literally called to, to hate our families, at least in the sense that, that we think of that word, word hate or hatred. You know, it's, we've got to understand the Bible in its own context. So when I say Jesus didn't literally mean the word hate the way we understand it, that's not, that's not undermining the words of, of Jesus. Sometimes in order to take somebody literally, you have to understand how they're using language to, to speak. 
And if I tell you I hate mayonnaise, right, it's the direct result of the fall. And then we go downstairs and somebody says, hey, Kyle, why don't you put mayonnaise on your burger? I heard you love mayonnaise. And I say, oh, yeah, that's me. I love mayonnaise. You would say, oh, Kyle's a liar. He said he hates mayonnaise on this hand, and he says he loves mayonnaise on this hand. In order to understand me and to take me literally, you have to understand that I'm actually speaking metaphorically there or even sarcastically there. You, you, would, you would intuitively understand where I'm going with this. So it is with, with Jesus' words. He's using stunning language to grab you, to pull you in, to, to capture you, to arrest the attention of his audience and to make his point unmistakably clear that he must be above family. He must be above anything and everything in your life. Something else to consider is that we, we, we tend to think primarily about feelings and, and emotions when we hear this word hatred. But in contexts like these, it, it can mean something like disregard or be disinclined towards in, in contrast to someone or something else. So for a biblical example, you might think of Genesis 29.30, where in Genesis 29.30, it says that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. He, he preferred one over the other. And then in Genesis 29.31, it says, when God saw that Leah was hated. Well, it's a, it's a matter of preference. It's a matter of, I'm more inclined to this one than I am inclined to this one. So as we think about that word hatred, it's, it's to have preference for Christ over and above anything and everyone. And we can imagine somebody in the crowd that day, maybe they're standing next to dad who's involved in a plot to actually put Jesus to death. But, but, but this guy, he's drawn to Christ. He, 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 the, the words of Christ are coming alive in his, his heart. He's got to make a choice. Who am I going to prefer? If I have to turn my back on somebody today, or if my family's going to turn their back on me, it's worth it to follow Jesus because he is the Son of God. So for the initial audience there, and for many, many people in our world and throughout the history of the church, this, this leaving family or facing the threat of family or losing family for choosing Christ is, is less of a hypothetical, it is a reality. But, but most of us, we, do, we don't face that, we don't face that deci- decision, we haven't had to and so for us, maybe the application from the text can come from, from the opposite direction here. And we can say this, that we are actually best equipped to love our family when we prioritize Christ above everyone or everyone and anything. When we prioritize our relationship with Christ, we're actually best equipped then to love our families well. You know, when I do premarital counseling, you know, you have a couple there, and they, they've been putting their best foot forward. They've been trying to impress. They've been trying to woo, and they've been trying to, to win. And, and I oftentimes tell them, you know, the worst thing you can do is go into marriage looking at your fiancé and saying, you know what, it's up to you. 
to make me happy. It's up to you to be the source of my joy and my peace and my contentment. And if you don't provide that, I'm going to be dissatisfied for the rest of my life. You are my ultimate source of comfort. You're placing on them a standard they could never meet. Or sometimes, those of you who have children, you can look at your kids and and say, you know what, you are my source of joy and security. You are my source of, of life. Of course, in, in some sense, you know, we love our kids, we love our fiancés and our spouses. But we can place expectations on others to fulfill that which only God can provide, the sort of peace and contentment and hope that only comes in Christ. We should be looking to Him as our treasure as the one who can bring true joy into our lives as we, we seek to honor Him and live life for the glory of God. It's when we love Christ, right? It's just, it's just love God and love neighbor stuff. When you love Christ above all, you, you're then free to self-sacrificially love and serve those around you, including your parents, your brothers and sisters, your husband or wife. So give yourself to Christ first. Find in Him your refuge. He is your rock. He is your strong tower. And then you're free to go forth and serve others. You know, the, the, the danger is to use others for our own gain. You know, Paul Tripp talks about couples dating. And he says there's, there's a real danger that even though you're looking at the other person, you're saying, I love you. At the, at the heart level, what you're saying is, you best help me to love myself. Because you, you, you do all the things I want you to do. That sort of selfish desire is not uncommon for us. And it's the next thing that Jesus deals with there in verses 26 and 27, the end of verse 26. What does Jesus say? Well, even if you don't hate your own life, you cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now you won't hear that in many motivational speeches. Not a lot of high school valedictorians find room for that in their commencement address. But here's Jesus saying, unless you hate your own life, you cannot come after me. You know, we, we dealt with this in Luke chapter 9, verse 26, when Jesus said, you know, take up your cross daily, come after me. But, but, but we said in the Old Testament that Israel's guilty over and over and over of what? Going after false gods, going after false gods. And you have Jesus here saying, you have to come after me. I'm the true God. God in the flesh standing before you. And saying, this is what's required for the audience. This is what's required for you to come after me. Turn your back on those other priorities. Remember, Jesus just blasted the Pharisees for having higher priorities than Christ. Turn your back on these other priorities and come follow me. We're not surprised that Jesus talks about taking up your cross. As we said, he's on his way to the cross. So in the sense that Jesus is going to die, we must lay our life down, be willing to, to, to bear up the cross. Specifically for those in the, in the audience there, they, that many of those disciples that were standing with Jesus did just that. They laid down their life in, in order to proclaim the gospel to the nations. 
is to bear the hatred and the scorn and the rejection and the reproach and the attacks at the hands of this world, and yes, for for many, even death. A decision to follow Christ would mean a continual need to pick up their cross, laying down of their life, a willingness to even die for this gospel. Continual laying down, down one's life, sometimes metaphorically, sometimes literally. As we said, many down through the centuries, this cross-bearing became a reality that's hard for us as Americans who have experienced religious liberty for so long to understand that they faced literal death in light of their faithfulness to Christ. You know, Revelation 12, 11 mentions some of these martyrs. It says, And they conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their own lives, even unto death. Isn't that what Jesus says? You must hate your own life. You can't love your own life and follow me because you might be required to give up your very life. One early martyr in the Christian church was named Polycarp. He was arrested and executed for his unwillingness to renounce Christ and to, to pronounce Caesar as some sort of a, of a god. And this is what he said before they executed him. He said, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Eighty and six years I've served him, and he's done me no wrong. How then could I blaspheme my king and my savior? You know, as, a, as a, the church today, we should praise God for these examples that we have in history for faithful people. Some of them, their deaths are recorded in history, like Polycarp. Others, we don't know. We haven't heard their names. They didn't make it into a, a history book. We won't know until eternity. But in light of their faithfulness. May, may we, in that sense, take up the cross, lay our life down in glad submission to Christ and live for Him, even when death is on the line and when something less than death is on the line, whether it's social, being socially ostracized or attacked. In First Peter, what's going on? They're being attacked verbally. They're being accused. Live honorably among the Gentiles so they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So we see here Jesus commanding the audience, this is what it, this is what it takes, I'm on my way to death. If you're going to follow me, you need to pick up your cross and follow me. What we see in, in the words of Jesus, it's the furthest thing from like a sales pitch, you know, where you're trying to trick somebody into buying something. He's not trying to emotionally manipulate. He's not trying to trick anyone into anything. He's trying to lay out the cost. There's a cost in, in faithfully following Christ. And so then he goes on to, to, to warn them, to challenge them, count the cost. And he does through a couple different parables there in verses 28 through 31. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost? whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to, to finish. You know, you see that word for in, in 
in, at least in the ESV, it, it kind of ties it to the previous verses. So even though we, in our notes, we sort of start a second point here, point number two, the cost of following Christ. It's not, don't, don't, don't think of it in your mind as completely divorced from what, what preceded. He's been talking about this cost. Pick up your cross and follow me. Hate your mother and your father and your, your siblings and your children. There is this high cost in following Jesus. So he says, you'd better consider this ahead of time. Like a builder who, who decides to build a tower. It'd be maybe some kind of military defense or maybe even added on to some house. But it'd be humiliating for a builder to, to sort of lay a foundation and start to lay bricks up and then, and then all of a sudden you run out of money or you run out of resources. That's humiliating. It, it's an announcement. If this is a military tower, it's an announcement to another army that they're unprepared. Come attack them. They're wide open for, for attack. You know, my hometown, growing up, there was these huge homes uh, that overlooked the city. You're, you're heading out of town, and there's this little mountain there, and these huge homes. But they, run out, they ran out of money. They couldn't finish it. And it's, it, it, it was a, a memorial, so to speak, just announcing that this builder started building and didn't have what he needed to finish the job. You know, it's, it's not even that, oh, the economy turned bad, or, or, you know, I had a sudden loss in the family, I had to give. It's that he just didn't even take the time to count the costs before he started. And this is an embarrassing situation. Jesus says this is a situation deserving of mockery. He should have counted the costs. You know, the New Testament has many examples of those who seem to, to start well, but in the end, they, they fell by the wayside. Jesus warned about this in the parable of the soils, that the seed seems to be germinating, but the cares of this world can choke out the seed. Timothy, when he was writing, or when Paul's writing to Timothy, and, and he's warning him to, to hold fast to the faith and to maintain a good conscience, he says, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. And he mentions Hymenaeus. Or we might consider the description of Paul about Demas, who said he, he loved the world, so he left. He loved the world. Judas himself is probably standing in this crowd, standing with Jesus as he's hearing these words, to count the cost before you follow Christ. For many, the cost proved to be too much. Jesus gives a, a, another example here. Verse 31, or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. This king is in a much more dire situation than the guy who just wants to build a tower. This king has only 10,000 soldiers, and he looks out across the battlefield. He sees a king with 20,000 soldiers, twice his size. The builder had his bank account to think about. 
This king has not only his whole army, not only his own life, but he has the safety of his, his people and his land to consider. And so what's the prudent action to take when you're outnumbered and you're going to lose this fight? Jesus says the prudent action is to, to, when, when you're vastly outnumbered is to send an ambassador across the battlefield and say, hey, let's make peace here. Let's not fight. It's to be humble enough to understand his true position and to seek grace and mercy from this more powerful king. He's going to send out a, an ambassador to negotiate a deal. So it's, it's to consider here the cost of warring against one that is clearly more powerful than you are. I think Jesus is highlighting the folly of not counting the costs and pursuing him. We'd be like a king who, for all intents and purposes, already defeated, saying, you know what, I'm no coward. I'm going to go fight this war, even though it's going to cost me and it's going to cost my people, it's going to cost me everything. Jesus has already warned us to, if you're going to get dragged off into court, hey, make a deal while you're on the way to court. I think there's similar imagery here. There's terms of peace on the, on the table. There's a peace treaty available. You know, not very often throughout the course of war and throughout the course of history does the losing party, the surrendering party, receive favorable terms of surrender. But if we come to Christ through repentance and faith, if we're willing to humble ourselves, to stop warring against Him with our sin and our rebellion and our pride, and to come to Him, we gain eternal life. We gain the forgiveness of sins. We gain the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. We gain Christ Himself. But there is a cost. There is a cost. And Jesus, again, He doesn't, he doesn't hide that cost. He doesn't seek to pull a fast one on anybody. I remember when I was in student ministry, we were going to this camp, and I convinced the camp, like, hey, can we stop doing these sort of emotional-type invitations at the end of the sermon? I feel like my kids are coming down. They're talking to people that don't know them. This kid has made a profession of faith every year for the past seven years, and your people don't know that, and you're going to lead them to the Lord again. And I said, can we just, can I deal with my own people? Can we just stop the sermon where we, we can sing a song? I don't care, but can I deal with my own kids? Can we all deal with our own kids? And they said, yeah, that sounds like a really good idea. But after two or three years, they realized they weren't getting the numbers that they wanted. They weren't able to go back to their home church and say, oh, we had 15 kids saved. And so they came to me and said, hey, Kyle, I know you really gave this idea. Um, but here's what's happening. We're losing momentum, they said. <laughs> We're losing momentum when kids go and talk to their own people. I thought, oh, okay, momentum. I haven't seen that one in the Scriptures yet. But, you know, Jesus didn't engage in that sort of... He wasn't trying to build momentum. He wasn't trying to, to get you all riled up, to get you crying down, down front. He didn't engage in this sort of ministry. He laid out plainly what are the requirements. These are the requirements. You choose to follow me, you need to be willing to lay down your life. You need to give me pride of place in your heart and in your affections. And so he makes this point really clear in verse 33. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my 
disciple. Saying nothing can matter more than belonging to me. No one is able to be a disciple without renouncing all that he has. You know, one translation that I like says, you need to be willing to say goodbye to all that you have. A willingness to say goodbye. Again, the crowd would have understood this intuitively. There's disciples there that Luke has already said in chapter 5 that they left everything and followed Jesus. So they understood what it would cost them to, to follow Christ. They might be ridiculed by friends and family. They might be removed from the social order, kicked out of the synagogue and the temple, which was the, the, the center of religious life, attacked, persecuted, potentially killed. Now again, we don't, we don't face a lot of that, but for us this morning on, on this side of the cross, at this point in, in our history, we need to be reminded that for us to faithfully follow Jesus, we need to be willing to lay it all down in service to Him. You, you, all that He has, right? All that I have, Lord, for Your glory. My family, my possessions, my reputation, my energy, my gifts, my weaknesses, all of it, Lord, just, just it's all Yours, just... Use it. The, the flesh wants to pull back against that, right? And, and functionally, we want to say, well, how little can I sort of give here in order to say that I did well? But what Jesus is demanding is not how little can I, can I give, but how much does God deserve? Well, He deserves all of it. So we spend a lot of time talking about counting the cost. And we've seen that the cost of following Christ is what? It's everything. It's your, it's your very life. It's all that you have. And so then, for the, for the time we have remaining, that I, I, it's my goal to convince you that it's worth it. And I don't have the ability to do that. God's Word can do that through the Holy Spirit. But it's my goal at this point to convince you that it's worth it. Or to remind you that it's worth it. You know, one reason that it's worth it is where we get point number three, the goodness of following Christ or the usefulness of following Christ. And then in the conclusion, we'll have the ultimate answer for why it's worth it. Look there in verses 34 and 35. Salt is good. I hate when preachers solicit amens. It's annoying to me, but salt is good. Amen? But if salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soul or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now the first, if we could sum up this idea of, of salt, we might say the first reason that it's worth it to forsake everything and to follow Christ is, is that there's no better way to live than in submission to Jesus. There's no better way than to live than, than to live than under submission to Jesus. You cannot waste your life. You cannot waste your life if you give it in service to Christ. doesn't matter if your dreams blew up a long time ago. If you didn't reach the college you wanted to or the profession you wanted to or, or the family that you, that you desired. Some of those things are hard and they're suffering there, but you cannot waste your life if you've given it to Christ. 
And so Jesus, who is, who's the master of using illustrations to make his point, he uses salt here to encourage the audience to count the cost. That to follow Jesus means you've you got to keep going or else the salt gets tossed away. The salt is no longer fruitful, it's no longer useful. Let's persevere until the end. Salt is good, Jesus says. It was in this context, it's the idea of being a, a flavor enhancer for food, right? Jesus goes on to talk about if it's lost its taste. So there's other uses for salt, but Jesus is talking about how it makes food taste better. And what is he saying? You know, J.O. preached from Matthew 5 not, not too long ago for us. That salt is an enhancer. It, it makes things better. Life in, under submission to Christ and is, is a good. It's a beautiful thing. It's good for our world. It enhances our families. It enhances our community. Salt is good. Christians living for the glory of God is good. It's good for our world. It's good for our city. And I know this is so contrary to, to the narrative of, of the world. But consider for a moment, when we act as the salt of the earth, when the church acts for the glory of God, when they love God above all else, and therefore they love their neighbor as themselves, they love their enemy even though their enemy is undeserving. Jesus says our lives are like salt. Our lives are livelier. They're enhanced. It's like adding salt to french fries. We can just think about this in terms of the areas we've mentioned that Jesus says you've got to give up. And when you love Christ above all, you become salt to your family. Consider, would our families be a better place if men took up their responsibilities to work hard for the glory of God? If, if they're married, to, to self-sacrificially, so give themselves to their wife? to use their authority not to punish and and to harm, but to serve. If men would take up the responsibility to bring their children up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord, would our families be a better, better place? Or if men would work hard for the glory of God to live self-sacrificial lives for the good of others? Man, what what if men in our world led in serving others? What if they led in being meek and gentle and lowly like Christ? What if if ladies demonstrated the meekness that so characterizes Christ? What if they were a place of refuge for the weary, willing to give themselves away to lift up the lowly and the downtrodden? What if they poured their energies into family and worked hard for the good of others? Would this be a better place if children honored mom and dad the way God calls them to honor mom and dad? You know, kids, you you have a wonderful opportunity to be the salt of the earth, a light to Christ, but by doing something like that, hearing mom and dad and listening and respecting your parents, or some of you who are caring for mom and dad who are at an age where they can no longer care for themselves. You're giving yourself away for the glory of God. 
So we, our families are radically transformed. When you love Christ, you become salt in the way you treat your possessions. What an opportunity for us to be salt and light in our world by holding stuff with, with, with an open hand, not a clenched fist. Would our city be better if, if, if everyone o- obeyed this command to lay down their, their stuff at the feet of Jesus and said, it's all for your glory? It's obvious. Right? The answer is, is obvious. And we've learned as we walk through the Gospel of Luke that we're actually free in Christ to be generous with what He's given us because we serve a sovereign God. We serve a sovereign God who cares for His people. So we can be those sort of people. We can be salt to our neighbors, to our city. Or consider this, when you love Christ, you become salt in the very way you, you treat your own life. You give your very self away. You don't love yourself. You don't live for yourself. You don't make self priority number one. Our lives are useful, Jesus is getting at. Because the salt can become useless. So when you are salt, you're useful. And you're God-glorifying when you lay down your life for Christ. Consider families that, that take in foster children or, or adopt. They're, they're giving themselves away. For the glory of God. So as you count the cost, and we ought to count the cost, keep in mind that there's no better life than following Christ. But there's a warning in this text that if the salt loses its saltiness, it becomes worthless. Now I know all you scientists out there are thinking, you know, it's actually impossible for sodium chloride to lose its taste. But the salt that Israel would, would gather up, you know, so it's not like, you know, they weren't going to Walmart, right? Um, it was sort of gathered up and it had these impurities mixed in. Not the sort of impurities that would make you sick, but there were other minerals mixed in with the salt. And if the salt wasn't properly cared for, then, then the, the, the sodium chloride could actually leach out. And what you're left with is something that looks like salt, but it doesn't actually taste like salt. And at that point, it's completely useless. I think Jesus is making the point, it's not even worth throwing out on the street or throwing on the manure pile. That's the warning. That's the warning, to count the cost because you don't want to be the salt that starts out strong and then you realize the cares of this world are, are too much. I love this world more than I love Christ and I'm going to walk away. So again, in other words, don't waste, waste your life. What Peter says in 2 Peter 1, Justin read this in, in Bible Hour, but he's saying, you know, if you're not growing in these Christian virtues like self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love, if you're not growing in these things, he says, actually, you need to be growing in these things to keep yourself from becoming ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of Christ. You know, a persistent, Here's what I think Peter's driving at, and I think the warning here is, is similar. A persistent lack of these qualities, right? We, we fail in many ways. Even genuine, solid believers fail in many ways to put on these virtues. But a persistent lack of these qualities demonstrates that a person is not following Christ. And there's this, there's this judgment in the text that salt is thrown out. The salt is thrown out. Judgment awaits those who, who make a superficial commitment to Christ and then fall away. But in there, there's, a, there's an encouragement to keep going for God's people. 
The warnings of Scripture are designed to prompt the people of God to keep going, keep fighting sin. Don't be fruitful or ineffective. Instead, look to Christ. That's what Peter says. Right? If you become, un, if you become ineffective and unfruitful, you've forgotten that you were cleansed from your former sins. You've forgotten the gospel. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. So I'll wrap up with this. The most fundamental reason that you should look at all that Jesus demands and the hardship of the Christian life, right? These disciples are eventually called Christians in Acts, the book of Acts. The reason you should prioritize Christ over family, over your own life, over your own possessions. The reason you should say, I've counted the cost and I want to follow Christ. The thing that sort of tips the scales in the favor of renouncing this world is not a thing in the end. It's a person. It's that Christ is worth it. Notice in the text that Jesus keeps saying, you cannot be my disciple, my disciple. You cannot come after me. This is is about Christ. That he is indeed worthy. That he is the goal and he is the reward. So we put everything on the altar, my dreams, my desires, my money, my time, and my energy. Why? Because of of Christ. You know, in union with Christ, we receive all of these benefits, right? We receive the forgiveness of sins. We receive the adoption as God's children. We're reconciled to God. All of these benefits come to those who are in Christ. But along with the benefits, we get Christ himself. We get Christ himself. And that's worth it. Jesus' intention is not to send you away packing as much as to, to get you to see him clearly and see that he is worthy to make the proper calculation that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. What we stand to gain is infinitely more satisfying. It's infinitely more joy-inducing than anything we have to give up in order to be obedient to Christ. God's Word reminds us that he who hopes in Christ will not be disappointed. God's Word reminds us that the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. The steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. Jesus is more precious than anything we stand to lose. He is our treasure. Let's pray together. Lord God, may we take our eyes off of this world. And may you direct our eyes towards Christ. May we see him who in Revelation 5 is worthy. Worthy is the lamb to receive honor and glory and wealth and might. Lord, may we live in light of the worth of Christ. Willing to lay it down, whether it's someone who needs to turn to Christ initially and be saved or whether it's those who are seeking to just be faithful along the path, may you give us a clearer sight of who Jesus is and what he's calling us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.